So glad to be with all of you here tonight as we continue this study. I, I just have gotten so much in my preparation uh, for each of these messages in this series that we have called Life in the Third Person. And we call it that because we're looking at the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. Last Wednesday, we looked at the coming of the Holy Spirit. We opened up Acts chapter 2, and we saw the believers gathered there, having obeyed the instructions of our Lord. Jesus told them, he said, I don't want you to leave Jerusalem. Stay put. Wait for something, someone who would be revealed as the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts chapter 2, we observed what happened? And there was a series of things that, that kind of appealed to the senses of those gathered, those believers. And the first thing that happened was they heard something, if you recall. They heard a rushing wind, didn't they? And they were by that made aware. They were uh, awakened about the Holy Spirit. They were drawn in to that Spirit. We, we said we identified that as the Spirit's calling of them. And that's what He does in our lives. When we come to faith, there is an awakening that takes place. There is a drawing by that spirit. There's a calling. He, he spoke to us. He called to us. And when that happens, we come, and ideally we come by faith and we receive, don't we? There, there's a, uh, a decision. And once we respond in faith, what happens after that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to discuss the event that follows Faith, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. There is an event that takes place. And that event happens to be one of the most controversial subjects in evangelical Christianity. And it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. You ready? Let's talk about it, but let's pray first, okay? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together in your word as we, as we move about uh, your inspired text, God, that's been revealed to us. What a privilege to open the Bible together and to see how it interprets itself, Lord Jesus. We're not coming with an agenda. We're not coming with a preconceived idea. We want to see what your word has to say on this matter. You get the last word, the first and the last and we pray uh, for an illumination of this to our minds, to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The first thing that we want to establish is in your notes that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an essential doctrine. This is important. What makes it an essential doctrine is that so many other doctrines are foundational to it. And maybe you've heard of some of these and maybe you haven't. But there's something called the indwelling of, of the Holy Spirit. He indwells the believer. How many of you have heard that the Holy Spirit indwells you? That is foundational to this notion of the, the baptism. When, the, when we say the Holy Spirit indwells you, it's like, it's like that presence, that, that Shekinah glory of God that was there in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Well, that veil's been torn. And guess where the Spirit of God lives now? Lives in you. That's the indwelling. That's connected to this idea, the baptism of the Spirit. Then there's something called the imputation of Christ's righteousness, that when we put our faith in him, that what he did on the cross was for us. We believe in that by faith, and his righteousness is applied to us. It's imputed to us. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. That has to do, is connected to this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's something that we're going to discuss soon in this series called the regeneration 
of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration. When a person becomes a Christian, there's a change that takes place. At least there, there ought to be. There better be. Okay? As Warren Wiersbe says, no man can come into contact with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and remain unchanged. Then you can come in contact with a live electrical wire and remain unchanged. There should be a difference in you. And that means he transforms you from the inside out. That's related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then there's something called the anointing. The anointing of the Holy Spirit. That takes place at baptism. Now, we throw that term around. We say, man, that worship set was really anointed. Man, that speaker was really anointed. I went to that service over there at that church. Boy, that was an anointed service. That guy's ministry is so anointed. And we throw that around like there's something special about a person or an activity. And I believe there's a valid use of that expression in some way. But did you know that every believer is anointed? Did you know that? Every Christian is anointed. Uh, In the Old Testament, anointing usually uh, implied that someone was set aside. If a person was anointed, that means they were reserved for something special, a very sanctified purpose of God. Well, that, that describes you my friend. Here's what it says in 1 John 2.20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So there you go. You, believer, have been anointed. 2 Corinthians 1.21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. So all believers have the anointing of the Spirit. So all of these things that I've talked about, the anointing, the indwelling, the regeneration, the imputation of righteousness, these are all wonderful acts of God toward the believer, and they're all directly tied to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so when we say that we are baptized, uh, this is a powerful thing. It's an essential thing. Some of you may have never heard the phrase before. Some of you may have heard it and you're familiar with it, but you're not exactly sure what it means. There's a lot of people that that don't really know what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, but I, I, I guarantee you that there are things that you believe, there are things that you embrace that are informed by a particular understanding of this doctrine, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? But today a lot of people are either uninformed or misinformed about this, and there can be a lot of confusion. Whenever I have led people to Christ, invariably in their young Christian life, early on, they encounter within, I'd say, that first year of their faith, uh, a couple of things that bring them great angst and consternation. Now, one thing is, Late at night, and always just seems they're reading late at night, I'll get a phone call because they got their Bible open and they've come across Hebrews chapter 6 and their blood runs cold and they read it and we'll, we'll get into Hebrews 6 one of these Wednesdays. That ought to be fun. And they read it and they, they, they look at it and they take it at face value and they think, oh my goodness, does this mean I can lose my salvation? And so they call up Scott at 2 a.m. or whatever, and they need a little counseling sesh on the spot. Can I lose my salvation? By the way, the answer is no. But that's one thing that they encounter. The other thing, however, that's a challenging moment in their young Christian faith is when they come across, now it used to be, used to be, when I was in college, uh, you remember when we used to flip channels? Remember those days? We don't do that anymore. We have streaming services now. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I still turn the knob on my TV. Uh, but we used to flip channels, and there was that one channel 
like channel 39 or whatever it is, there's a religious channel and you'd see somebody on there and you know, they're on a, they're on a platform and there's something that looks like a throne back here that's for the speaker and whatnot. And they're, they're just preaching. It's, it's a little, it's a little more emotive type of service than perhaps what, what a lot of people experience. And today it would happen to be maybe a video on YouTube or something that they'd come across. And it'd be an, an, an individual of particular notoriety of a particular theological background. And this person says, you know, after I became a Christian, my life was just so-so. And then I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now everything has changed. And the person watching this that's young in their faith thinks, well, now, wait a minute. Have I, have I had that? I don't know that I've had that yet. I don't want my Christian life to be so-so. This guy says the key to not being so-so is this baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I've had that baptism. And so I've had those conversations. I've had those very anxious discussions with young believers because these voices are out there. I heard one Pentecostal evangelist on TV say uh, that the notion that a person trusts Christ and, and that's all and, and that the baptism of the Spirit is in that moment, they said that is the greatest lie out of the pit of hell. I've heard that said on national TV. Is that true? Is that true? Well, that's what we're going to unpack tonight. So let's talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the first question I want to ask in your notes is, what is it? What is it? Uh, because we need to understand this. And let's begin with the word baptism. What does the word baptism mean? Well, the word baptism in our language, when we read that in English, that is not a translation. That is what's called a transliteration a transliteration. When we say baptism, in Greek, that's not, that doesn't exist in the original language. The Greek word root is baptizo, baptizo. Uh, you've heard me say that before. And so we're taking that word baptizo that we, that we say translates as baptize, and we expand it into a noun. And the noun becomes baptism. And so it's a transliteration of baptizo. And baptizo means to dunk. It means to immerse. Okay? When you take your Oreo and you put it in the milk, you are, that is a baptizo moment for that Oreo. All right? And when we baptize people, water baptism, believer's baptism, as we did just a few weeks ago, we dunk them. We put them under the water. They submerge 100%. And it's because that's, that's what the word means, okay? And so when we talk about this idea that we are baptized in the Spirit, more accurately, we would say we've been immersed in the Spirit. If we were to, to translate this accurately, we'd say this doctrine should be called the immersion in the Spirit. Uh, but whatever we call it is really insufficient, because the picture of water baptism is just total identification with that water. You dunk them, they come up, they couldn't be any wetter. They are as identified with that water as they could get. Unless you dunk them and their eyes are open and their mouth is open and they haven't plugged their nose at all and water just gets all in, inside there and everything, that's the only way they could be more wet than they are. They are as identified with the water as they possibly can be. Look at this text in 1 Corinthians 10. I want to show you something. This, this references how the Israelites, uh, after they left 
Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea. Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our, our fathers, the Jews, the Israelites, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and all were baptized, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, what in the world is he talking about? They were baptized into Moses? They were immersed in Moses? They were they were identified with Moses. What this means is that when God was going to destroy them, because they would tick him off, Moses is up on Sinai. He's with the Lord. And uh, where are the Israelites? They're down at the base of that mount, right? What's happening? Well, they've engaged in idolatry. They're doing all these things. And God's like, I'm going to smoke them, Moses. I'm just, they're, they're disobedient. We're, I'm going to smite them for all I'm worth. And Moses pleads with God. And so God gives favor to Moses. And so what's happened is he's accepted Moses and therefore he accepts Israel. That's what this is referring to. And so now everything that's true of Moses is true of Israel and vice versa. They're now linked in the sight of God. And so you see how that plays out. God blesses Moses. He blesses Israel. Israel does not get to go that first generation. They do not get to go into the promised land. Who else doesn't go? Moses. Because they are unified. They are linked in the sight of God. They are inseparably united. They were immersed in Moses. And so whatever the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, it means that whoever is baptized in the Holy Spirit has gotten all that he has. You get everything that the Holy Spirit is and has. Whatever is true of God becomes true of you. Whatever he could transfer to you, he transfers. And that's baptism in the Holy Spirit. Here's the definition in your notes. I've already put it there, so you don't have to write anything. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is when the believer is brought into, and there's two key terms here, vital union with God. That's the first important phrase. And the second is total identification with Jesus Christ. And it happens at the point of faith. At the point of faith. Now, we're going to get to the whole point of a faith thing. But let's look at these two important components of the baptism of the Spirit. The first one is vital union in your notes. What is that? That means my nature is intertwined with God. It's intertwined with God. Like a garden hose that you pull out of a shed. You're just tangled up with God. You're completely intertwined with God. He has shared his life with me. When he calls us the body of Christ, that's what this is talking about. I am just a part. I am a member of the body. Christ is the head, you see. You know this verse, Genesis 2, 24. We read it on a Sunday not long ago. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You've heard that before, right? at every wedding that you've ever attended, probably. And that image is used three times in Scripture regarding marriage, but it's used twice as a picture of the believer and his God. Okay? Uh, you, you and I have become one flesh with God. Paul told the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.16, 6, he says, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's saying, don't mess around with immorality. Don't do that. Here's why. Because the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You don't engage in immorality, Christian, because you are unified with God. Don't drag the spirit into that with you. You're one. And that's God's design, that we put trust in Christ and our lives change because we become 
part of the very life of God. That's what baptism is. We're a member of the body. We're a branch on the vine. We're one. We're unified. Vital union. And then this other phrase, total identification. In your notes, what's that mean? It means that what is true of Christ is true of me. Just like what, what was true of Moses was true for the Israelites. You are identified with Christ. What's true of him is true of you. That means he's righteous, now I'm righteous. He's holy, now I'm holy. He's eternal, now I'm eternal. I'm going to be in heaven. He will reign, guess what? I get to reign. I'm going to be reigning with him. Romans 8, 16. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You see, I, folks here, I'm adopted. I'm adopted. Now, some of you are like, well, I met your dad a few weeks ago. He, he looks just like you, except he's bald. You know? You, I, you, you look exactly, you can't be adopted. No, no, I am the biological progeny of Rob Grimm. That is true. But I am adopted by Jesus Christ. And guess what? If you're a believer, so are you. There are innumerable uh, adopted kids that have become united with him in faith uh, with the only begotten Son of God. And all Christian growth is comprised of putting your trust in Christ. That's number one. Number two, you are united with him in faith. And then number three, for the rest of your life, you get to try to figure out the splendor of all of that. And that is the Christian life. And so that's the truth of our relationship. There is vital union. There is total identification. That's the definition. Now let's take that a little bit further. Is this something new? By Acts chapter 2. Is this the first time that this concept is introduced? We talked about Pentecost last week. Is that the very first time that anybody had ever heard of such a notion? Uh, not exactly. Not exactly. Because first of all, in your notes, what you're going to see is the prophet Joel predicted it. The prophet Joel predicted it. When you look at Acts 2, uh, I want you to understand that this is something that had been foreseen for eight centuries. Not the church specifically, but this idea of the Spirit of God uniting with man, okay? That we are immersed in him. Acts chapter 2, Peter takes a stand. Here this miraculous thing has happened. And, and these followers of Christ are now uttering things that they should not know. They don't know the languages that are coming out of their mouth. It's obviously a miraculous thing. And here's what Peter says in Acts 2.14, men of Judea. And remember why all these people are here that speak different languages. It's Pentecost. It's Shavuot. Okay? Frank, did I pronounce that right? Shavuot. He, he's my Hebrew checker. All right? Shavuot. It is, it is a, 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 a feast in which all of these Jews from all these different countries come. They all speak different languages. And that's why this utterance is coming out of Christ's followers miraculously. And so Peter gets up there. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. They're, they're up here babbling. They're not drunk. It's the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning, he says. Uh, there was a song that, that used to go, uh, we're, not drunk as, we're not drunk as you suppose. We're just filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's what he said. He said, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
All these Jews knew who Joel was. He says, this goes back, this miracle was told 800 years ago. The concept of what is happening is not new. It's been predicted. Uh, now, let me preface this with, with this. In the Old Testament, did the Holy Spirit move in people? Yes. Was there an indwelling? Was there a baptism? No. No. The Holy Spirit came upon people for specific purposes in a temporary fashion. Now, they would, they would likely be a believing Jew, so there was a limited capacity to the Holy Spirit's empowerment, but he would come upon them, not in any permanent way, but just temporarily for a task that the Lord had ordained. And he'd come upon kings, and he'd come upon uh, judges, and he'd come upon, in one instance, uh, an architect slash interior designer, the guy who built the temple. All right, And so this would happen, and it would be for something specific. And when that task was accomplished, spirit would leave. That's the Old Testament context. And that's why David, King David, says in Psalm 51, see if this sounds familiar. He says, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. You thought that was just a nice little Christian song. No, that's a Davidic Judaistic song. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Does the Lord take his spirit from us today? Nope. No. Because we've been baptized in him. We're indwelled by him. In David's day, he would come and go, you see. And so Peter now quotes the prophet Joel, Acts 2.17. Joel said, in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all flesh. You see, that's the difference. There's totality now. There is a universality now with the spirits coming. There's not a limitedness to a select few. It's not just the prophets. It's not just the kings. It's not just the judges. It's everybody. Or as some people say, everybody. Everybody that trusts in the Lord gets the spirit. Okay, that's more than everybody, everybody. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So not only is it everybody, it's both genders. It's men, it's women. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. It ain't just the old, it's the, it's the whippersnappers too. It's the youngsters that believe. And then he says, verse 18, even on my male servants and my female servants, okay? So this is not a respecter of status. It's not just going to be the wealthy. It's going to be the lowly. It's everyone. And so the Old Testament prophet Joel predicts this time that all, all who believe, all means all, that's all, all means, right? All who believe shall receive all, not part, but all of the Spirit, not a limited dose, permanent. That's Joel. Now, in your notes, not only did Joel the prophet predict this, but John the Baptist anticipated it. This is what John the Baptist said in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 3, 16, he said, I baptize you with water. You remember what he's doing. He's at the Jordan. He's dunking people, right? Looks like what we just did a few weeks ago. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoes. Who is this guy? Jesus. He's coming and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
and fire. Do I need to swap? No? Is that a just in case? Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So John's baptizing in the Jordan River, and it's a water baptism. Now, the water baptism that John is engaging in, that is a baptism of repentance. Okay? That is not what we do. When we baptize people, that's because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. He has saved them. They've made a commitment. The old self has been put to death, and they are a a resurrected being. They are a new creature, and so that's what that water symbolizes. Now, what John did looked exactly the same. He was immersing people in the water, but it was not based on any decision they had made prior. This was a baptism of repentance and preparation for this coming Messiah, to prepare the hearts of the people. And here he's saying, there's a new guy who's coming. He's not just going to dunk you with water. He's going to dunk you in the presence of God. Ah, oh, man, that's new. That was mind-blowing right there. And John the Baptist says in John three thirty four, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. You get all of him. No limited doses, you see. And so that's Joel, that's John the Baptist. Now what about Jesus? Jesus claimed it in your notes. He claimed this. Uh, Here's what he says, and we've, we've referenced this before, John 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And they're, they're thinking, uh-oh, we do love you, but I don't see that happening. I, we, have you seen us at work? We're t- we stink, Lord. We are lousy, lousy disciples. But he says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. He's with you, but then future tense, he will be, future, he will be where? In you, in you. And so you put all these passages together, you got Joel, you got John the Baptist, you got Jesus, you got Acts 2. And it's literally happening. And so the Spirit's baptism was predicted, it was anticipated, it was claimed, it was enacted and seen in Acts 2. And we can say that we experience this as new believers. We have experienced this. And why is this necessary? In your notes, why is the baptism of the Spirit necessary? I want you to think about this. For God to take a sinner and say, you are no longer under the binding of ethics. I'm going to set you free. I'm, this is a, an act of releasing. What needs to happen for freedom to be experienced? Um, if, if you have total freedom, can you be trusted with that total freedom in your own humanness, in your own nature? No, you see, in your notes, freedom requires spiritual change. Spiritual change. I mean, think about Israel. What happened to Israel between the crossing of the Red Sea and Mount Sinai? What did they do? Well, they made a golden calf. Well, they danced around naked and had orgies and all this stuff. And so, you know, God wants to kill them, right? So they, they, they were given freedom. God released them from bondage. And then they just devolved into debauchery and idolatry. And so God says, okay, I'm going to write it down for you. You're having trouble doing what I say? Now I'm going to write it down. I'm going to put it on these stone tablets. And so now in Acts 2, God is saying, you're free. You're free. You're not under law. You're under grace. But you've got to understand, for us to really experience that freedom, 
He's got to change us. He's got to do something in us. Uh, you, don't go, you don't go into a kindergarten classroom and open the door and go, you're free! <laughs> and not expect bad things to happen. They will burn the whole school down, okay? One comedian said, if you, if you had all the two-year-olds in the world, you could conquer the universe, right? I mean... Uh, if, if somebody said, if you told uh, two-year-olds not to fill up potholes, they would refine every road in America, you know, because human nature does the opposite. So God's got to do something because uh, we don't have the ability to exercise this freedom. He's got to transform us. We got to be changed. How's it going to happen? He's going to say, I'm going to have to immerse you in my life. I got to dip you in all of this, all that I am. And so this is a necessary occurrence. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in grace that sin may abound? Or in sin that grace may abound, rather? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? And here's what the kicker is. Do you not know that all, all means all, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this is what I sometimes say when we baptize people because of what it symbolizes. They go down, I say, buried in the likeness of his death. They come up, I say, raised to walk in newness of life. And the idea that Christianity exists without the baptism of the Spirit is a ridiculous idea. It's a ridiculous idea. You are lacking that which makes you necessarily a Christian. To say that I'm a Christian, but I haven't had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, either you're mistaken, you have, or you're not, you're not a Christian. Because if you've not had this, you don't belong to Christ. You, you, you're, you're lacking the thing that makes you... There, there's nothing worth... While. There's nothing of worth in your faith. You're like, you're like one of those decorative pillows. You ever try to sleep on one of those things? It's crunchy as all get out. They're pretty. They look the part. That ain't a pillow. That is no pillow. Not that I've slept on the sofa a lot. I want you to understand that. I'm not saying that. All right. Let's go a step further. There are four times in the New Testament outside of the book of Acts that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And there's a very common denominator each time it's mentioned. Paul has an issue in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians. The context is there's a group there, and they're fighting. They're jockeying for position in the church, and they're fighting over who's the greatest teacher, all right, and uh, who everybody ought to follow. 1 Corinthians 1.12, uh, each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or some just say, I follow Christ, those are the, real, those are the G- Jesus jukers right there. They're like, well, I just follow Jesus. You know? But they're all fighting over who to follow. Well, it's a good thing people don't fight over which pastor to follow these days. I mean, that'd be terrible, right? Well, they're comparing. What, what do you say to that if you're Paul? Here's what you say in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He's saying there's going to be a unity. There's got to be a unity here. You don't have to be an exegetical genius to see what he's saying here. There's no varsity or JV Christians. You understand? There are some Christians that have a higher level of maturity, but in the eyes of Christ, there are no levels of salvation. Do you follow me? You are all children of God if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with your maturity level. When he looks at you, there's no varying levels of salvation. And so there cannot be Christians without the baptism of the Spirit. And so people who say, you know, well, he's saved, but he hasn't received the baptism yet. They don't understand. This, the purpose here in your notes is there is diversity, but it requires spiritual unity. And that's why you must have the baptism. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what makes us equal. We are equal. It's, it's not that God has simply declared us equal. It's that he can't do any better than he's done in each believer. He can't, he can't give a believer more of himself than he's given. He can't immerse you more into himself than he has immersed you. You have all that he has to give. Now, whether, you, whether or not you take advantage of that is a matter of maturity. It's not a matter of your position. It's not a matter of your status. I have four children. They're all my children. They're all equal in terms of being my children. They're different ages. They're very different in personality. But they are all equally mine. And the reason they're equal is not because I've declared them equal. They're not equal because I've made them equal in some fashion after their birth. They're equal in that I can't do better than I have done in terms of bringing them into existence. They all have the same genetic, the same essence of Scott. Pray for them. All right? And we are all of his essence. Because we have shared in his baptism, you see. You remember this? Ephesians 4, 4 through 5. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What a beautiful verse that is. Paul says we all have the same baptism. We've got different gifts. We've got different callings. We've got different personalities, different makeup. We have one baptism. One baptism. All right, so we're equal. Uh, Galatians, uh, you, you had some people saying that if you did not do certain things, you know, you had, you know, it's okay, it's good that you're following Jesus, but you know, you need to keep following the law. You need to keep observing the, the ceremonies and the feasts and the, all of the ordinances and the cleansings and all that. You gotta be circumcised. You gotta have the dietary code. And they're adding, they're adding there. And Paul says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is not slave nor free nor male nor female. You're all one. And if you are a Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You know how, how radical this is that Paul's saying? Do you know what women were viewed as in that day? Luggage. And Paul's saying it makes no difference. And he was rocking the boat, all right? So that's why this is necessary. You picking up on all that? So we know what it is. We know why it's important. Now, let's look at when, when is it. 
When does this occur? First of all, you've got to understand in your notes that this is an operation of the church age. This idea might be centuries old by the time Pentecost happens in Acts chapter 2, but it's never transpired until Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is the dawn of the church age. It is on that day that the church is born. And we are still in that age. So the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a characteristic of this age. You are living in the first and only age in which people have been immersed in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Pentecost kicked all that off. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not in a limited way. In a permanent way. You'll be immersed in him. So the law is dying out. The law is wrapping up. You got a new age beginning right here. No more age of law. Now, despite that, some elements of the age of law die hard. Because in Acts 11, Peter, who is born again, who has the spirit, he's still operating in a little bit, in a little way, a little fashion like he's under the law. And he, he recounts a vision that he's had. And so in this vision, God shows him all these animals that are considered unclean, that a Jew must stay away from, that Peter is continuing to stay away from. And as he has this dream of all these unclean animals, he hears the voice of the Lord say, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Partake. Go ahead, son. Enjoy some North Carolina pork shoulder, all right? Eat up. You're going to love it. And he says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. And then Peter says, verse 11, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And these six brothers also accompanied me, and they entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send me to ascend to Joppa and bring Simon, Peter who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And that's really wanted to get what I wanted to get to there. The, he says the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it did on us. When? At the beginning. Well, when did the Holy Spirit fall on them? At Pentecost. So what's the beginning of the church age? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So any of this notion about the church age began in the middle of the book of Acts? No. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. That was when the church materialized because of the Holy Spirit. And so the second thing in your notes that we need to know about when this comes, it comes at the point of faith. It comes at the point of faith. Uh, this, is a, this is a tough thing for some people to swallow because of how they were raised, because of their church background, and they believe that it comes sometime after salvation, sometime, maybe it's a second baptism altogether, just depends. Listen, you and I are never told, in the New Testament, we are never told to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit as Christians. We're never told that. We're told to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're told not to quench the Holy Spirit. We're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit, all right? We're told to be led by the Holy Spirit, 
We're never told to be baptized in the Holy Spirit because as Christians, we're already baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be told to do something that's already done. It's done. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the, that does not make the difference between a Christian and a better Christian. It's the difference between a lost person and a saved person. It's the difference between a dead person and a living person, spiritually speaking. You understand. Romans 8, 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Does not belong to him. You're either united with Adam and a doomed race, or you're united by the Spirit with the, with the last Adam, Jesus Christ, and are therefore going to live and reign eternally. And it's all because of this. And it occurs at that moment of total identification, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It happens at the point of faith. Now, let me address a couple problems here. And this is a question in your notes. Why do some believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is separate from salvation? It comes later, okay? You may have heard that. Maybe you're, you have that inclination. Let me help you out here. Uh, people point to about three instances in the book of Acts where it appears that followers of Jesus do not have the Holy Spirit. And so there is a moment where they then receive, but they appear to be following Christ and yet they don't have it. And then they are baptized in the Spirit and they receive the Spirit later. All right? So why do some believers... Uh, hold that the baptism of the Spirit is separate from salvation. In your notes, first of all, they misunderstand the baptism's purpose. They misunderstand the baptism's purpose. And we've, we've covered the purpose. All the, you can just review your notes. Okay? Vital union. Total identification. Diversity with unity. Okay? All of those things. If anybody says to you, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and you're already a Christian, God bless them, and I mean this with all love. I mean this with all love. Uh, that statement is the teaching of a neo-charismatic movement that really does not understand the purpose of the Holy Spirit baptism. They see it as a helpful additive to, Christian, to uh, the Christian life. They see it as, as an enhancement. Folks, it's not an enhancement. It's everything. It's everything. Uh, uh, it, it's, they equate it with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, are you automatically filled all the time with the Holy Spirit as a child of God? No, you're not. You are indwelled with the Spirit, but there apparently something called the filling of the Holy Spirit. Do you 100% all the time follow the Lord? You're obedient in every fashion. You have no bad thoughts. You have no disobedience, no rebelliousness. You're perfect. Are you perfect in everything that you do? Well, that means you're not always filled with the Spirit. Now, you, you have the Spirit. He's in you, right? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It doesn't mean you get more Spirit. It means the Spirit gets more of you. It means you're surrendering and you're walking. Because here's the deal. you got two natures. you got the new nature. That's the Spirit. But you still have the old nature, don't you? You, you guys struggle with the flesh? I do. Yeah, we give in to temptation. We give in to anger. We give in to bitterness. Is that because all you have is the Spirit? No, you got the flesh too. 
And so when you sin, what does Paul say? When I sin, it is not I that sins, it's sin that lives in me. That's the flesh. That's the old man, the old nature. And so you got these two natures, and you live according to the old nature. You're not filled with the Spirit. You're indwelled with the Spirit, but you're not surrendering your life. Peter, in a book in Acts, he gets filled with the Spirit like three different times in one chapter. And so this is something that bears repetition, right? And so we don't equate the baptism of the Spirit with that. The baptism is a genesis. It's, it's not an ongoing work. It's an initial work that kicks off this sanctification in your life. You don't seek the baptism. You rejoice in it. You apply it. You live according to it. All right? So they misunderstand its purpose. And it's next in your notes. They believe it's separate because they mistake historical transition for standard doctrine. They mistake the fact that the book of Acts is a historical transitionary time. This coming of the Holy Spirit, it had to be administered for prophecy to be fulfilled. It had to be administered in the book of Acts to people who believed in Christ prior. The Holy Spirit had not come when they began to follow Jesus. They were following Jesus by faith, but they had not received the Holy Spirit yet because it was not the appointed time. The appointed time happened on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And so there were people that were Christ followers who had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so that's why they had to receive it. They had not been baptized. They had not been regenerated. And so this was happening in an orderly fashion. Uh, let me give you a text that's a problem text for some people. Acts chapter uh, 8, verse 14. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, what did they receive? The word of God. They sent them to Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. They'd only received the word of God. Why hadn't they received the Holy Spirit yet? Because he hadn't come yet. You see, in any sense, it wasn't like, like we can't transport that scenario to today because the Holy Spirit has already come. He came 2,000 years ago. In their day, when they followed Christ, he hadn't come at all. And so by Pentecost, he had come. Now they who were following by faith, they needed to receive the Holy Spirit. So verse 16 says, he had not yet fallen on any of them. By the way, it says he, not it. Holy Spirit's person. He had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, the apostles, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Why the delay? This, this was up in Samaria in the north. You remember the Great Commission? Okay, first of all, you got the instruction. Go to Jerusalem, wait, don't leave town, wait, for what? For my spirit to come. And then you get the Great Commission, and, and when he comes upon you, you will have power, and you will be my witnesses where? There's an order here. In Jerusalem, and then Judea, and Samaria, and then to North Carolina. The ends of the earth, all right? There's an order. Starts in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the Spirit comes first. Then it's going to go out. Judea and Samaria. So on Pentecost, there wasn't this universal indwelling and baptism that happened. It was those believers in Jerusalem 
there weren't believers elsewhere that woke up baptized spiritually. No, they had to receive it. There was an order that happened there. And God withheld it for unity. If you didn't have that, you'd have two separate churches. You'd have the church of Samaria, the church of Jerusalem, and they'd be at odds with each other. But he, he brought them the same spirit that indwelled believers in Jerusalem. The apostles introduced the people in Samaria to that, and now you got unity. You got unity. You didn't have two occurrences of the coming of the Holy Spirit. You had one coming, and now there's one baptism that follows that coming. Okay. Now, in Acts 19, here's another scenario that people struggle with. Acts 19, verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So Paul is with a group of guys, and they're disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So they weren't there in Jerusalem when he came, obviously. They would have have heard about him. And he said, into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Well, remember what John's baptism is? Is that, a bapt- is that like our water baptism? I- I've been baptized in the Spirit, and this is a picture of that, my death, burial, resurrection. No. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and preparation for the coming one, Christ. John's baptism pointed ahead to Jesus. The water baptism we do points back to him. This is who he is. This is what he did for me. This is what he did in me. And so Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying that uh, right then. So after that transition of the book of Acts, that transitionary period, that first generation of believers that believed prior to Pentecost, once they had all received the baptism of the Spirit, from then on, anyone who put their faith in Christ is immediately baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that continues to be the case today. Nobody gets baptized separate from their moment of faith. That's the biblical understanding here. Now, We just read a passage that ends with something miraculous. They receive the Holy Spirit, and then something happens. And this is the third reason, is because of a text like this. This is the third reason that some people assume that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is separate from salvation. In your notes, they associate it with the manifestation of tongues. Of tongues. Question, does the baptism of the Holy Spirit automatically result in speaking in tongues? Answer, no. No. And you do hear this from some quarters. Now, we're going to discuss the gift of tongues. I'm going to do three weeks on spiritual gifts. And yes, we're going to talk about what are called sign gifts. And we will talk about tongues. All I'm going to say tonight on this subject is that tongues is not a mandatory sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not a mandatory sign. Nor is it any indication of heightened spiritual maturity. Because someone speaks in tongues does not make them more of a super Christian than than people who don't speak in tongues. If anybody around you is feeding you that, I'd get away from them. That's not a biblical concept at all. All right? Uh, Let me just draw your attention to this. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 29. Are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues? 
Do all interpret. What's he saying? Not everybody does these things. Why? Because these are gifts. These are gifts. And the Spirit is the one who apportions to each what God intends. And keep in mind, same chapter earlier, what did he say? He said, in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. So the whole context is we are unified, unified. We're all in, all in. And here he's saying, do all do these things? No, not all are prophets, not all are apostles, not all speak in tongues, not all do miracles. And by the way, you know how many times we see tongues in the book of Acts? Three. Three times. You know how, how many years are covered in the book of Acts? Forty. Forty years. Uh, if tongues were directly connected to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think we'd see it more. I think we'd see it more. Uh, in fact, I think it would be a command in every book of your New Testament. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit. All right? Uh, and by, by the way, if everybody did this, if everybody were, were gifted in this and called to do this, we'd all be speaking in tongues at the same time. What's the point of spiritual gifts? It's diversity within the unified body. Diversity. That we minister to one another in unique ways. Why would we have to minister to one another if we could all do the same thing? There's a gifting here. All right. Because I, listen, last thing I would do is stand up here and say, you know, uh, you're all one in him, but your Christian life isn't hitting like it should. You need to be more like me. You should all be more like me. You'd all get up and walk out of here. You're like, I am done with that short guy from California. Forget this. No, <laughs> the purpose of gifts is that everybody, everybody doesn't have them all. We are uniquely gifted. I can't wait to talk about spiritual gifts. That's going to be so much fun. It's really a blessing to discover what your gifts are. Because you've got them. If you are a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift. Do you know what it is? We're going to hopefully discover that. Well, that's enough for tonight. I'm done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing on everybody here. Thank you for their hunger. Thank you for their attentiveness tonight. God, I pray you'll just uh, give them a, a special knowledge that they belong to you this week and that we are unified and that they have access to all that is in you, that you're not holding anything back from them, that you, you, they could not be more yours than you have made them. I pray for that knowledge to permeate all of us. In Christ's name, amen.